Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. This is episode 82 and I've been looking forward to this episode for so many months. My guest today is Yale Professor of Comparative Literature and the Humanities, Martin Hagland. I started reading Martin's new book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, back in March of this year, after discovering it by reading a review of the book written by Jedediah Purdy before the book was even released. The review by Purdy for The New Republic is entitled, The Spiritual Case for Socialism. Little did I know how much this book would have to do with secular humanism and the direct relationship between a secular understanding of human existence and experience and a form of social life he calls democratic socialism. From my perspective, this is the most profound book I've read in at least two to three years and has helped coalesce many ideas I've had floating around in my head for the past five years since leaving my faith and moving on to live this life. In addition to this most recent book, Martin Hegland is also the author of two other books, Radical Atheism, Derrida and the Time of Life, and Dying for Time, Proust, Wolf, Nabokov. Martin spoke to me via Google from his home in Stockholm, Sweden. For the past almost 20 years, I've been deeply interested in the intersection of philosophy, ethics, and politics. As a Christian theologian and pastor, my work focused on political and practical theology and the question of how people put their faith into action in the world. I was increasingly troubled by the disconnect I saw between the confessional life of Christians and their practical engagements in the world. As I left first my religion and then my faith in God, the question of what it means to be human and how we live lives of meaning and freedom continued to inspire me. While Martin's book doesn't answer all the questions and leaves the hard work of putting these ideas into practice in the hands of his readers, the ideas he weaves together in this book are programmatic in their scope. I hope that atheists, humanists, and secular people across the country will read this book and then gather their community together to discuss its implications. It's that important. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners who contribute anywhere from $1 to $100 a month to make it possible. So I want to say a hearty thank you to each one of you. It doesn't matter how much you contribute. The fact that you contribute to the making of this show is what matters the most. I feel strongly that we are all part of a conversation that is only now emerging in new ways. 
and that that conversation is about exactly the things that Martin and I discuss in this episode and the things he writes about in his new book. If you'd like to be a part of this community, making this podcast available for free to anyone who wants to listen, please visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There you can make a monthly pledge of any amount you like, from $1 up to whatever you think it's worth. At the $5 per month level, you'll be invited to the private Facebook group for members of the community. I'm really looking forward to the conversation we will have there about this episode and all the implications it has for our lives. So now, without any further delay, here is my conversation with Martin Hagelin. Martin Hagelin, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, Ryan. Yeah, it's uh, really exciting for me. I've um, Your book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, uh, has been a, a, a lovely companion in the first uh, few months of this year, and I've been looking forward for some time now to being able to talk to you about it. It's so perfectly positioned for me personally, and I think mm-hmm. uh, for my podcast audience to um, grapple with the issues that are the most important uh, to us. And I'm just so grateful, first of all, uh, for the, the immense amount of work it obviously represents. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So your book is really, as, as academic books tend to be, uh, wonderfully organized. And I, I wonder if we could just start by taking it sort of uh, in summary. Um, the subtitle kind of serves as a, a really nice outline of the book, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. So perhaps we could start with the first part, secular faith. What what do you mean when you talk about secular faith? Because those two words almost seem contradictory to some people. What yeah. what does faith uh, have to do with secularity? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think it could be helpful if I first say a few words just about what I mean by secular. Sure. So, you know, in, for me, that's a term that I'm using really in accordance with its etymological roots. So the secular in my sense is the worldly, the temporal, the historical. Those are all connotations of the, of the Latin word for secular. Uh, so, you know, in my sense, everything that depends on our historical practices is secular. So like our institutions, our communities, our love relationships, uh, really any project to which we're committed is secular because it's something that must be upheld by us and it can fall apart if we don't sustain it, you know? So that's, that's the sense in which something is, is secular just because it depends on our historical practices, our worldly practices, our practices that require time and have to be sustained over time. Mm. So what I'm calling then secular faith uh, is that practical activity really of sustaining a commitment. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm using the term faith uh, is because I really think it's a big mistake to assume that the original meaning of faith is is religious belief. Uh, uh, I, I don't. Faith is not primarily faith in something, but it's the practice of sustaining a commitment. Okay. Uh, and actually, if you think about how we use the term uh, colloquially, how that vocabulary of, of fidelity, uh, how pervasive it is. You know, like any commitment is something that we have to keep faith with. Mm. Uh, and that's also why we say that you're unfaithful when you f- fail to sustain or when you betray a commitment. And and those questions of really fidelity and betrayal are really at stake in all forms of commitment. And that's, that's a matter of secular faith because something that uh, what we're committed to, what we're keeping faith with doesn't exist independently of us keeping faith with it, of our practice of sustaining it. Uh, and that's also why it can f- fall apart if we, if we fail to sustain it. So, so in that sense, that's also why in the book I, I say that like in secular faith, uh, 
the object of faith is is altogether dependent on the on the practice of faith. Uh, you know, whether it's the institution, the community, the personal relationship, uh, uh, it doesn't exist independently of how we are sustaining and devoting ourselves so th- to it. So the negative sort of religious connotation of faith really has more to do with what religious people have faith in than the idea of faith itself. Exactly. And that's also exactly. And that's also why for me, what I'm calling religious faith uh, is the idea that there is a special object of faith like God or eternity or nirvana. Uh, something that ultimately doesn't depend on the practice of faith, something that would exist independently and eternally. And that's what you have faith in. And that's also why it's linked to this idea that like the finite, the worldly, the historical is not enough. There has to be something beyond it. And that's the idea I want us to, to let go of, you know? So you could say that, you know, if the highest object of religious faith is something eternal, uh, then the highest object of secular faith is this fragile life that we, that we sustain together. Something temporal. And, and, you know, and it's really, and part of the movement of the book is to, is to really um, uh, make a case for uh, uh, why we have a better understanding of the pathos and significance of our commitments from the secular perspective and, and why we should let go of this idea that there, uh, um, uh, that there is something independent of our practices. So, so as to fully recognize and avow the importance of, of, our life together as the highest good, as it were. Yeah, and there's something really fundamental in your work, and I, I've, I've also encountered this elsewhere, but perhaps not quite so thoroughly fleshed out as in what you've written, mm-hmm. the idea that the temporality of our life, this idea of keeping faith with our temporal commitments that are finite yeah. and, and time-bound um, is essential to being human. Yeah, and essential to anything mattering anything being at stake uh in what you do you know because you know uh uh otherwise it would fall apart uh and that's part of like what animates the commitment to it mm-hmm. so that's part of the dynamic i want to capture in time in terms of this con- conception of secular faith so then the other side of the equation if it as it were mm-hmm. is the spiritual freedom um and so again a similar type of question uh, yeah. uh, what is spiritual about the kind of freedom that you're talking about? Why not just freedom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, both spiritual and faith are these very overdetermined terms that that, <laughs> that can seem hopeless from a secular perspective. But, I, but you know, just as I think it's a big mistake to assume that faith uh, should be understood in religious terms, I also think it's a big mistake to assume that so-called spiritual questions should be understood uh, in terms of the supernatural, in terms of some kind of contemplation that makes you rest in peace, as it were. Uh, for me, on the contrary, like, I'm arguing that spiritual questions, and that's really questions about what ultimately matters, what is truly valuable, what we ought to do with our lives. Uh, all of those questions, I argue, are like better understood in, in, in secular terms. So, so what I'm calling spiritual freedom, um, simply put, it's, it's our ability to ask ourselves what we value and what is worth doing with our time. You know, we have spiritual questions and spiritual problems because we can engage that question on what we value and what is worth doing. Uh, and one of the things I'm trying to show is that uh, only someone who is finite and temporal can can lead a spiritual life in the sense, you know, that that, that question of what I value and what I should do, uh, what matters that uh, that can only be at stake because because I understand in practice that that my time is finite. Uh, I mean, if I ha- if I believe that I have an infinite time to live, 
you know, the the urgency and importance of doing something would, would be unintelligible because there would be, you know, there would be no deadline as it were. Right. Uh, and that's also why I'm trying to show that like what we usually think of as the highest form of spiritual state, you know, whether Christian eternal life or Buddhist nirvana, that uh, those uh, supposed visions of, of spirituality and freedom are actually visions of unfreedom because in that sort of, eternal state there wouldn't be any question what we should do with our lives you know there would be nothing to worry about but for the same reason there also wouldn't be anything at stake and there would be no there would be no freedom so so i'm trying to 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 show that uh uh spiritual and spiritual questions and spiritual experience uh it's not just that it doesn't require something eternal or supernatural it actually requires something that is like materially fragile and finite yeah so it's a way of rethinking these fundamental notions that that idea of eternity actually gets in the way and sort of short circuits the process of understanding what's valuable yeah absolutely absolutely you have this lovely little spot in the book this section that i i actually stopped and read out loud to my girlfriend because it just i didn't expect it and it was so uh such an insight for me that um what makes a spiritual being spiritual and you might say um what I guess hum- what makes humans spiritual beings rather than, say, a pet cat uh, yeah. is the ability to determine or question what I should do with my time. You know, you have, you know, cats have plenty of free time, as we know. Domestic cats don't yeah. really do anything. They just sort yeah. of sit there yeah. and, and wait to be uh, fed or whatever. But but they don't. Absolutely. So while they have this kind of free time on their on their hands, they don't have the ability to decide what to do with it. Exactly, and and uh, engage the question passionately or anxiously, etc., about what what to do with it, and and that's actually uh, you know uh, that can be anxiety-producing, paralyzing, but it's also like how we can actually, I mean, you could put it this way. I put it this way in the book that like for all living beings, uh, life is valuable in the sense that all living beings are committed to maintaining their lives, but like only. Uh, spiritually free beings can ask the question of what is valuable and what is worth doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of this strategy, I mean, you rightly asked about the strategy of using these terms like spiritual and faith and so on. I mean, it has to do with the general strategy of the book that like, instead of thinking about the secular as what we have, when we sort of subtract these religious notions, like actually the secular, the time bound, the finite, if we take that seriously and avow our commitment to that, we'll actually have a better way of accounting for, 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 uh, uh, questions that have traditionally seemed to require, you know, uh, something infinite or eternal or transcendent. There's something really amazing about this turnaround because I think sometimes maybe we're on Facebook or something and we're feeling yeah. like we're having a hard day and and we make these sort of uh, sort of simple associations with being conscious as humans yeah. and we sort of look at our dog just relaxing there with no worries and we think oh yeah. my like this higher order of existence is yeah. a blessing as as it were but also this burden that we bear that yeah. that is as you say anxiety producing yeah. and you know we have the sense that maybe we're wasting our time you know yeah. the idea of wasting one's time like i could be doing something better but you yeah. turn that around and i mean instead of that i mean it is a source of anxiety and yeah. sometimes yeah. we do wish we were, could be our pet dog but 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 you're saying like this is actually the most beautiful thing that we can actually have this anxiety and not that the anxiety is the the point but that we can be free yeah absolutely and the anxiety is also an index that 
that it matters what we do and that something's at stake in what we do. And like, it's a very uh, delicate argument I'm trying to thread through the book where uh, I want to acknowledge that like the risk of failure and loss and the risk of wasting your time, et cetera, is an essential feature of uh, spiritual life. You have to run that risk, you know, to also have a chance of doing something meaningful. But it's very important that one ceases that argument without thinking that way, like, oh, I'm fine with wasting my time. Of course not. It has to be still a negative moment, but it's also productive of these things that are positive and meaningful. So it's always throughout the book tries to think, like, you know, you can't have uh, the passion without the anxiety. You can't have the joy without the pain. You can't have the chance without the risk. And thinking those together is really the heart of a secular understanding of who we are, in my sense. Yeah. So... You, you, you know, as we've said, you, you know, you make the case that we can only really recognize our lives as a life, uh, and we can only care about whatever we do if there's this finite horizon to our life. And mm-hmm. I guess I knew this almost intuitively as I was uh, a pastor for so many years, watching the way that religious faith disconnected people from their lives or from their problems. And they you know we had hymns like, you know, "This world is not my home; I'm just passing mm-hmm. through." My treasures are laid up away beyond the blue. And, you know, I can yeah. imagine believers, um, and I've spoken to some people that are still yeah. believe, Christian, religious believers about your book, and I believe, you know, they would say that they can live this life with commitment and passion as well as having faith in eternity. How do you, how do you respond to questions like that? I'm sure you've heard. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an important question. And to be clear, of course, on my account, uh, people who identify as religious uh, can live their lives with commitment and passion. But the question uh, for me is, and the question I'm trying to raise is how we should understand the deepest source of that commitment and passion, you know? And there's a very widespread sense um, that without the religious sense of eternity or the transcendent life would be uh, meaningless. Uh, And my argument is on the contrary, that there's a sort of secular sense of finitude at the heart of care and commitment, even for those who identify as religious. You know, so like in practice, you know, I, this is what I'm trying to show that like what animates that care is, is a sense of finitude, secular sense of finitude rather than a religious sense of eternity. Uh, so that, you know, in practice, caring about someone or something requires both that you believe in its value. That's the first movement of secular faith, but also that you believe that it's fragile and that it can cease to be. Uh, and, you know, so. For example, it's because I recognize you as finite. I can understand that you're in need and it matters how I treat you. Uh, and and more generally, like it's only in the light of risk that and failure that we can be committed to sustaining anything that, that, that we value and that that fragility is is part of what animates the commitment in, in practice. So, uh, I mean, another way of saying that is there's, a, there's an important theological distinction that I use for secular ends in the book, and that's the distinction between living and dead faith. You know, um, oh, yeah. that, that, you know, and uh, this is a notion that, as, as I'm sure you know, it goes from the letter of James to, to Aquinas and Luther and Kierkegaard, uh, where like the living faith is really the faith on which you prepare to act. It's a faith that in practice shapes how you're affected by what happens to you. Uh, and as very strong as that's the faith on which you're ready to stake your life, you know, mm. uh, whereas the dead faith is something you claim to believe, even though that faith is not manifested by your actions and even though you wouldn't make your life depend on it. And one way of thinking about my argument is to say that, like, well, uh, to show that, like, our living faith is secular in my sense and invite religious people also to recognize that, like, in practice, what actually animates their their passion, their commitments is this secular sense of fragility. Mm. Uh, even if they might avow 
uh, a religious faith, you know, I'm I'm uh, inviting them to consider the possibility that that's that's a dead faith, whereas the living one is better understood in secular terms. Yeah, and you use toward the end of the book, you use Martin Luther King Jr. as sort of a paradigmatic example of this, where his religious sermons tend to be more oriented around the horizon of eternity, but his activism yeah. is absolutely focused on the here and now. Absolutely, and I even try to show that uh, there is both a secular and a religious use of the word God in his in his speeches, mm. you know, so, so that there is a way in which, like, you know. Uh, and here, uh, uh, Hegel's idea of of, uh, of faith and the practice of faith is very important to the argument because, like, part of Hegel's idea was that, like, in in faith as a practical activity, you know, the real object of devotion is is the congregation itself, you know, the community that you build mm. through recognizing one another's dignity and intrinsic value in forms of practices around birth and death and coming together, etc. Uh, but the religious understanding of that activity doesn't grasp that that's actually the the highest good and what we're actually devoted to and committed to our life together because it thinks that the ultimate object of devotion is a salvation that goes beyond that fragile life or it's obedience to a god who commands norms that are external but there is the possibility of recognizing that what we're actually uh uh devoted to is is uh, is, is our life together as the highest good and, and, and acknowledging one another as ends in ourselves. And I'm trying to show that, like, you know, much of the Martin Luther King and civil rights movements, uh, like that the pathos significance of how they were um, deploying practices that have been associated with religion are actually better understood in secular terms in this way. So Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, I mean, I guess the, my favorite thing about your book is the way you weave it all together. I mean, it's, it's, I love the pieces of the book, but the whole is, is so much more than the sum of the parts, I think. And so you, in the second half, you, you know, rather than as a philosopher might, um, mm-hmm. leaving the argument in the sort of in the sky around, yeah. you know, big ideas around meaning and purpose and our value and as, in an esoteric sense, you know, you go on in the second half of the book to say, okay, if this is true, if our finite lives are the only things that we can really care about, then what are we actually going to do about it? Because we don't live alone. We don't even just live with our nuclear family. We live in a society in which everyone, not just me, not just you, but everyone has these same concerns. And we have to negotiate these uh, sometimes conflicting needs and desires uh, in in a larger scale society, and um, and so that that seems to me how you make is that is that fair like how you make the yeah, transition? That, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. That's 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 exactly that's a very good way of describing how the book moves. And intimately related to that, I want to emphasize as a first general point that like um, when I'm talking about the spiritual in the secular sense, uh, it's very important part of my argument to show that actually like spiritual questions cannot even in principle be separated from like material questions mm. of how we sustain our lives. It can't be separated even in principle from economic questions, uh, you know, which shouldn't be understood in a limited sense in terms of modern economics, but in terms of economic questions as like questions of what is valuable, what is worth doing, you know? So like, it's really also about the inseparability of material and spiritual life, spiritual and economic life. And that's where Marx becomes really important because uh, through his work, I think we can, I'm trying to show that there are great resources to think on every level what it means that to lead a spiritual life is not to repose in some sort of contemplative peace, 
right. but it is to be engaged and at stake in a life that is essentially dependent on material conditions and therefore essentially fragile, but also essentially social, essentially dependent on others, you know, because none of us, because we're finite, we can't sustain our lives on our own. So there's an interdependence, you know, in terms of how our lives are sustained. And the question is, how are we going to do justice to that? Yeah, and I, I feel like in modern po- political life, um, you know, you often, you probably hear this as well, I'll hear people say, you know, I don't really want to get into politics or they'll say like on my Facebook, I don't talk about politics, which is, I mean, I get what they mean by that. Or even just in their, like in their everyday lived life, like let's just not worry about politics. And I, I have such a sense of politics as I think you do that I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't even know how, how you could express like how that works. Um, because everything is about politics except perhaps, I had a, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine not too long ago, and I said everything's about politics, and he was like, I don't know if I want to like, um, you know, and I, I think what he would say in your terms is our free mm-hmm. time, like we don't want to politicize our free time, but in order to have the free time, everything else has to be, you know, in a way politicized. We have to talk about how these pieces fit together, such that we each have our own uh, freedom, our spiritual freedom, as you would say. Absolutely. Although I would say that. Yeah, even our, it depends on what we mean by politicizing our free time, but it's very important that, in my terms, free time should be understood as socially available free time. And that also means that you can't have free time on your own, mm. both because free time is created by, uh, it's freed up by the work of society as a whole right. in them allowing you to have free time, but it's also social in the sense of like that all meaningful activities that I would count as free because I can see them as ends in themselves are social activities. Even if I sit alone in my room and write my book, whatever, like that, that, that is not meaningful and it's not intelligible as a free activity, uh, except in relation to others who would recognize it and who I'm, who I'm trying to address and, and, and in relation to whom I understand myself. So, so uh, it's very important uh, for me that we don't have an opposition between the individual and the social, right. and we shouldn't feel like we have to choose between them. There's a, so neither reduce, so like, and this what Marx called like we are essentially social individuals. So, uh, so to, how to think that those two things together? Together, yeah. So you a second ago mentioned Marx, and I'm I'm um, not uh, unfortunately my because of my uh, upbringing, I failed to have a, a very thorough uh, philosophical education personally. But I've along the way, you know, become a bit of a fan of of Marx, and and a bit frustrated at the misunderstanding that that sort of predominates in the world about his work so you you make this lengthy analysis of marx in the second half of the book and you say that marx was deeply concerned and committed to democracy which is not you know and this spiritual freedom as you call it but that's not the image that the average person has of of marx they associate him with a totalitarian regime of what became the ussr and so could you yeah. briefly just express your understanding of Marx vis-a-vis the humanist concerns we've talked about so far? Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, start on a few threads there and we can follow, follow, follow up on that. I mean, you know, the, um, the starting point for me is that uh, to think about Marx as someone who is pursuing questions of time and freedom and value on a very fundamental level and then leading up to, to very concrete political questions. But, but the starting point really... Uh, for Marxist thinking is that like 
uh, all living beings generate a surplus of time, uh, as we talked about before, like, you know, the cat has free time, you have free time in the sense that like no living being has to spend all its time on surviving. There's some free time to do something else. Mm. But what interest marks from early on is precisely this question that we already touched upon that like, unlike other animal species that we know of, such as our domestic cats, uh, we can treat that surplus of time uh, as free time and ask ourselves what we ought to do with what is worth doing with it, uh, you know, what we should do with it, mm. what is worth doing. Mm. That fundamental question of spiritual freedom opening up. Uh, so, the, the, so, so that there is such free time in some minimal sense is, 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 is a feature of our lives. But Marx is interested in what are the conditions of possibility for owning that question, both individually and collectively. Uh, and, and that's really the, basic motivation between behind Marx's critique of capitalism and his call for a, for a different form of social life that, you know, to lead a free life in a substantial sense, uh, it's not enough that we have formal rights to freedom. We also must have access to the material resources, forms of education that allow us to own and engage that question of what we ought to do with our lives and what we ought to do with our time together. Right. So what is our own in the sense and the notion of, even though Marx's famous critical property, it, uh, you know, he's very interested in the question of like, uh, what is our own and what we can make of our own, but what is our own is not property or goods. It's this time of our lives. Uh, so, right. And in that way, I would say that like Marx allows us to, to pursue in the deepest possible way, this commitment to our life together as the highest good. What would it mean to live uh, in explicit recognition of that? Our life together is the, the highest good and our responsibility for one another is the highest vocation. Uh, and that's really what emancipation and the overcoming of capitalism is about, on my account. Yeah, and answering that question of how we should do this is, you know, there's a lot of work yet to go, you know, oh, in, in terms absolutely. of like, you know, one way to answer that, I suppose, one effort to answer that did end up becoming the the Soviet regime where it became a totalitarian sort of effort, um, which did sort of the opposite, right, of what he hoped for, which was the robbing of people of their freedom and... Uh, in a similar way that capitalism robs people of their of their freedom um, to choose. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why it's very important in the book that I'm trying to show how seriously Marx takes uh, the idea of freedom and equality, which, which are built into the idea of democracy. And I, I'm trying to show in the book that he actually takes those ideals more serious than the liberals do and, and that his call for overcoming capitalism shouldn't be understood as a call for abolishing dem- uh, democracy, but making actual democracy possible mm. and and also importantly like you know it's not like marx while being critical of capitalism also you know has a whole argument for why you know the the idea of freedom and equality couldn't have come about without the advent of capitalism right. and liberalism and so it's not an external critique of these forms of life it's just a critique that tries to show why neither capitalism nor liberalism can fulfill their own promises of freedom and equality um, and why there are internal contradictions that we have to overcome. Yeah, I mean, his whole analysis is so eminent. You know, it's it's not like this, like you say, critique from outside. And um, it's just a matter of, you know, looking at what we have and trying to figure out a way forward, um, yeah. which kind of leads me to my next question. And one of my biggest frustrations about the way Marx and his ideas are discussed in the modern world is this sort of idea that his philosophy is almost um, eschatological in a theological sense that it's almost deterministic in the sense that we are on this inevitable march towards a socialist economy, what he yeah. you know calls communism, and this is you know obviously a deeply modern notion, right? That we're 
on this steady uh, deterministic march towards freedom. But you say no, that that there are really no promises in Marx, just simply an analysis of uh, the way that we are currently living our lives and then an offer of a better way to be humans in community. And I'm wondering, on your view, like why is this teleological, this eschatological view of Marx so common? Yeah, it's a very important question. And there's a distinction here, which might sound a little overly philosophical, but it's helpful, that two things tend to be conflated. And that's the, 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 the idea of causal necessity and rational necessity. So the view that you're describing is this idea that, like, there's a causal necessity of progress, you know, such that, like, yeah, yeah we're automatically determined to, to, to progress and, and so on. And that view is sometimes described to Marx. I don't think that he, uh, there's actually any... Uh, substance to 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 ascribing him that view, but but there's a very different notion of necessity with something like rational necessity, and that's the necessity of like uh, not the necessity that, for example, as we talked about, like we ha- we have the historical achievement of having become committed to the freedom and equality of everyone, and then there's the question, well, what does that commit us to? Right. Yeah. Rationally, and that doesn't mean that like fulfilling those ideas is causally necessary or, or, or is, is just causally going to be brought about. But there is a rational necessity to holding oneself to those ideals and pursuing their implications and being answerable for them. And it's in that sense, uh, it's that sense that, that Marx is interested in, that like there has, you know, what does the historical achievement of, of our collective commitment to freedom and equality mean and what's the demand of us? And in light of that, we can then show why, capitalist form of life can fulfill those promises, why it contradicts those notions of freedom and equality that it also promotes. And that's the way forward in terms of critique and struggling for emancipation. But there's nothing that uh, secures that. No guarantee. Uh, and, and very important too, in my view, unlike uh, utopian Marxists that I criticize, you know, even if we achieve an emancipated form of life, you know, it's always going to be fragile. You know, it's right. always something that we're going to have to sustain and, and, and be answerable for and justify. And, and that's part of what makes it uh, uh, a living project, you know, that, that, that fragility is never going to go away. Uh, and, 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 and that's not a shortcoming. That's just part of, of, uh, of why it's, you know, why something will always be at stake in, in sustaining that form of life. Yeah, sort of back to the beginning of your book about how yeah, there are yeah. no promises, that this is always something we have to work out. Yeah, I mean, there are no guarantees. I mean, right. uh, in a way, so, so, there are, that's, yeah, there are no guarantees. That would be causal necessity. Right. But there are promises. That's a rational necessity. That is to say, like, you know, you are obliged to keep a promise, but you can, it's possible that you will not keep it. Right. So, so one, one curious thing to me is that throughout this reading this book, I'm thinking, wow, this is the best expression of humanism I've ever uh, read. And in fact, I've attempted myself from a layperson's perspective to sort of articulate what I would call like a radical humanism in the way that mm-hmm. you do, but you don't really use the word humanism. Why is that? Well, it's a very interesting question. Uh, I think it's because it's such an overdetermined term. So I'm mm. happy to, if, if you tell me what your notion of humanism is, and I can tell you how my arguments relate to that and some of my motivations for doing something that I take more to be more fundamental in a way. So maybe we can just open that conversation, which I think is very important by just because people can mean so many different things by humanism. So can you just give me a brief sense of, of your take on it? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I often say that humanism is the commitment to um, the pursuit of life in concern for others without promises, like without the promises of that religion often makes, you know, that, 
right. that there is this, uh, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, as it were. So, right. you know, I think to me, humanism is about being responsible, about mm-hmm. humans being responsible. Um, and I, you're, I, 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 I sense maybe where you might be headed with that too. The sense that it's the word humanism makes it sound like the only thing that matters in the world is humans. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but I think. The, the agency of human beings is what's really at stake, I right. think, in humanism, that certainly the natural order outside of the human species is essential and important, all the, yeah. way, all the way down to the microbes and whatever else. But, yeah. but I have yeah. nothing to, like, I, I'm not those things. I'm a human. So yeah. to me, humanism is to say that we're not relying on, on um, outside forces to fix the world or... We're, yeah. that we're the ones we're waiting for and that it's up to us. Right, right. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I would say that, like, with that definition, um, what I'm doing is, is completely compatible with that. The reason uh, I'm not using the term in the way I'm trying to philosophically ground that sort of notion yeah. on a deeper level, and that's also why I'm, like, in Chapter 4, very importantly, when I distinguish between what I'm calling natural freedom and spiritual freedom or natural life and spiritual life, it's very important I'm saying that, like, even though we are the only species we know of that have spiritual freedom, in my sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, th- uh, there is nothing in principle that excludes that there could be spiritually free beings on other planets or that they could be engineered, etc. What I'm trying to specify is the, is the genus of spiritual life in a way in which we are a species, you know. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, that's important for several reasons because I'm also trying to show um, uh, that... Uh, uh, the, the, the connection, say, between something being valuable and something being finite or like that, like something can be at stake and there can be agency uh, only in light of temporal finitude, all these arguments I make, it's very important for my argument that that's not just happens to be a feature of us being humans, but actually it's not intelligible that it can be any agent uh, for whom things matter uh, and who can have and who can be free in the sense without being finite, mm. you know. So, so that's also like, and and that sort of argument is also supposed to um, help us overcome this idea that like because one could accept something like okay, for us humans, things can only be valuable in this way, and still wish, yeah, but I wish I didn't have to be human or something right, like that. Right. And that argument, I want to undercut by by grounding the philosophical argument more capaciously, showing that there is, in principle, on the level of intelligibility, a necessary connection between fragility and meaning, mattering infinitude. And I think that provides like a ground for those sorts of humanist arguments, but but it tries to um, provide a different sort of philosophical foundation for them. You know, I love that. And I've I've often thought, you know, in the question sometimes in my journey away from religious faith yeah. to humanism or to atheism, um, people have said, well, you know, what would like what would convince you that there is a God? And so I've I've thought about this over so much and and yeah. uh, every time I encounter, like, I, I sometimes think of this as a little, sort of a silly analogy, but sometimes I yeah. think of this movie Prometheus. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with, uh, it's part of the Aliens series, mm-hmm. but uh, in Prometheus, you know, they go out into deep space in search of what appears to be their creator um, based on clues from Earth. And they go out there and they find this, um, you know, alien species that was ostensibly like the creator of the human 
race and they're also finite beings, you know? So just like orders of magnitude more intelligent than we are, but not orders of magnitude more moral than, than we are actually, you know? So it's just like a, like a, a us projected on a larger screen. And when you try to kind of grapple with this God that's portrayed in the Bible, like how would you, how would you know that you had found it? If you found it, uh, there is no, I, I can't come up with anything. Right, right. I mean, I think this is intimately related to to an argument that runs throughout the book, but that we haven't touched upon yet. So I thought I would mention it for for the listeners. Yeah. And it's that, like, uh, you know, uh, in my, I'm not trying to uh, disprove, say, the existence of God or eternal life. I'm trying to ask a more fundamental question: question the assumption that, like, that it would be desirable. Uh, even to be eternal, to have eternal life, you know, and that's it, because if you undercut that, you undercut even the motivation <laughs> for, yeah. for for trying to prove it, and 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 therefore it also interests me all these uh, religious traditions where, like, when they're really going to think through what it would mean to be uh, eternal and absolved from the precarity and pain of mortal life, it's you know you can't actually conceptually separate that state of absolute fullness from just absolute emptiness, you know, you can't separate that. That's mm. idea of absolute life from absolute death, because when you remove uh, the risk of death, you also re- you know remove the, the the animation of life, as it were. And that's also why, like the very you know, the book is called This Life, and the and in chapter four, I really analyze just the the logical implications of the form of self maintenance that characterizes all living beings, and like you know, self maintenance only has a purpose and a point because your life depends on it so it always has to be in relation to the to the risk of death for there to be anything at stake in sustaining and devoting yourself to something and and that's not just true of like that's true in a primitive form of other organisms but that holds for all even our highest spiritual commitments that's why there's always something that has to be sustained and that is animated by 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 this by by the by the risk of loss and you can't remove that without removing meaning itself i think a lot of people my, that was a lot of things very fast. So no, no, I, I yeah, love it. Yeah. I'm just sort of like in a trance yeah. over here, just kind of listening. Um, yeah. I, I think, I'm, I'm, I guess as I was listening to you, I'm, I'm trying to think about why people still hold on to this promise of eternal life when it seems to me, at least, and again, I, it's just, you know, I can't speak for everyone, um, that yeah. your, your argument's very compelling to me. And I wonder, I think it's, Tell me what you think. I, I think it's that people don't think very deeply about these things because we're busy and we're, you know, trying to, as you say, maintain our lives. And, um, yeah. you know, someone close to us passes away and that hurts like nothing we've ever experienced before. And we just yeah. want that feeling of loss to go away. And yeah. for millennia, religious gurus of some kind or another have told us yeah. that there is a life in which that pain can be gone. And yeah. um, that's the life that we're looking for and th- that we all sort of long for. And it just crops up in the culture uh, from yeah. prehistory, uh, I imagine, to, yeah. to today. And, and I think if people stopped and said, oh, yeah, that makes sense, that if I, if I didn't fear that I was going to like, lose something or that this friendship could end, then the friendship wouldn't... I wouldn't have to invest in it because it's safe. I wouldn't ever have to worry that the person would like lose interest in me because I'm not paying attention to them. 
or less egoistically put, you wouldn't have to care about the well-being of your friend, you know, unless, you know, this friend was was fragile and mortal. Right. Uh, so that like that there is a, that that the sense of um, and this is, of course, a, you know, a difficult and painful thing. I'm not denying that at all. I want to do justice to that in the book, that this intertwinement of that, like, you know, both that everything we love is something that is fragile and can fall apart, but also that that risk is part of what makes it matter. I mean, these are these are these are things that are always a challenge to grapple with. But in response to your question, I think one has to distinguish a number of different things, so uh, all of which are pertinent for the book. I mean, so one thing that I think has happened that I'm trying to is, is that we conflate what I'm calling in the book the desire to live on with the desire to be eternal, you know? So lots of mm. these things that we think are as expressions of our desire for uh, eternity or immortal life are actually better understood as desires to prolong a temporal finite life, you know? Right. So like, you know, that's when I'm, when you lose a beloved and I'm trying to show this, even in the case of religious authors like Luther and C.S. Lewis and Augustine, that, uh, you know, the, the pain of loss and the desire to to have your beloved back is actually not properly captured as a desire for for eternal life. It's a, you know you want you want that life, the fragile life you shared to go on right, and to be prolonged. Right, right. Desire to live on, um, and 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 uh, and that that desire actually couldn't be fulfilled by an eternal life. So that so that so that's one aspect of it that like a lot of things that we take as testimony to this desire for eternity are actually better understood as as this desire to live on. Um, but then the second thing I would say is that. Uh, yeah, and this is why this is also why the Marx part of the book is so important. That that even though I'm trying to show that in practice uh, uh, we're devoted to this life together, to fully be able to own that both individually and collectively, also requires that, like you know, we we have a shared social life in which we can actually see the point and the purpose of what we're doing mm. and overcome that sort of alienation. And that's why, like the overcoming of, of religion and the overcoming of an alienated form of social life also go together and you can't think one without the other. So it's, so the book tries to do get, both provide arguments, philosophical arguments for people to understand themselves differently, but then also saying that like, yes, but understanding ourselves is also a practical question how we actually lead our lives. And that requires political and social transformation. So both of those things are necessary. Mm. Yes. So my mind is going towards, um, again, more practical concerns. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about your conception of human nature, which is yeah. unavoidable when you're framing everything from the first page um, yeah. as sort of an expression of, um, you know, human freedom and sort of, va- you know, the, how we properly value our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think immediately like in terms of political frameworks that might apply to your project it rules out a kind of um totalitarian type of regime right where a few people decide for the the stupid masses what what, you know how they should live their lives Um, because there is a sort of a rising tide of that type of thinking uh right now that um there's you know the the unwashed masses are too ignorant and stupid to decide for themselves how to live. And, yeah. and we also um, can think about, you know, demo- failures of democracy where it does seem like 
um, the collective uh, maybe doesn't always yeah. know what's best for it. And then, you know, and so I wonder about your view of human nature. And it seems rather optimistic that um, people can be uh, act in their own self-interest and in the self-interest of others in a way that mm-hmm. is cooperative. Uh, how do yeah. you how do you navigate the sort of the present reality that we're in? And maybe not. Yeah. I mean, there's maybe nothing that unique about our present reality. I think it's probably always a challenge uh, to to na- navigate these things. So I guess the juxtaposition I'm wondering about the apparent selfishness of human nature and the problems that we have in negotiating yeah. this in real life and then the vision that you have this, uh, you know, uh, of a cooperative society. Yeah, uh, very important question. And uh, I want to stress that actually it's very important to my view that I don't... Uh, uh, have a conception of human nature in that sense, you know, mm. maybe this is another reason, uh, uh, this related to the humanism question too, but, but what's very important, uh, to me is that, and this is part of why we are, uh, spiritually free is that, uh, which doesn't mean by the way, I, I just want to say this, first of all, that like spiritual, uh, spiritually free beings is self a sort of natural kind. I mean, there's, there's nothing supernatural about it at all, but what's distinctive about spiritual beings is that like, uh, we don't have a given nature. Uh, it's a matter of our social formation, you know. So that's uh, so. Right. Uh, uh, so so, I don't think we should naturalize the way in which we are egoistic, say, in the capitalist form of life. Not because there's some innocent nature that we've lost, but because like what is constitutive is that we are beings who. Uh, strive for self-satisfaction but what counts as self-satisfaction is not given unlike for the cat or the dog you know so if we live and work in a society where what counts as satisfaction you know uh, uh, is to optimize resources and to treat each other as uh, as competing for resources etc you know there will be a certain type of pathologies developing due to that social formation right. and the point is not that that social formation again deprived of some original innocence that is our nature. I'm not making any such assumptions. But what that means is that like so much is at stake in our habituation, our social formation, uh, all the way from how we materially reproduce and sustain our lives through work, to our forms of education, to our institutions, to our explicit self-understandings. And that's why the book is concerned with all of these things. Right, you know? right. So to actualize the greatest form of spiritual freedom, which is not just discovering some nature but like holding ourselves and forming each other and uh, it and the question is like what would be required for us to be able to to uh, do that in a way that is much more uh, fulfilling and in line uh, with our normative commitments than, than currently is the case so uh, that's also why I wouldn't say that it's like it's not for me a matter of like optimism versus pessimism and it's also not about predicting how probable what I'm talking about is to be brought about. It's about articulating that this is possible, you know, and it's possible because we have this form of social freedom because we are formed by our socialization. And that's why there's, we have so much responsibility for how that socialization is pursued and, and, and sustained uh, uh, institutionally. And that's really, that's where all these questions about uh, uh, capitalism and labor really uh, because because these are not just like, um, um, yeah, we are not these egoistic atoms that then are poured into the system. We are like <laughs> formed 
by that system, you know, that's and so thereby helpful. we can be formed in a different way. And that's really what we should be talking about when we talk about our values, our institutions, our life together. A lot, yeah. So a lot of my sort of development as a thinker uh, through my education was shaped by a kind of I, I, so I hear echoes of Aristotle kind of, and you talk about yeah, Aristotle a absolutely. lot about habits yeah. and, and habituation yeah. and um, yeah. the way that we form our life together. And, and it's sort of against essentialism. And I wonder if you, how you would react to that. Like, I feel like yeah. in my own personal journey of learning, when, whether it's about race or gender or sexuality yeah. or like anytime we start to sort of frame the conversation about essential qualities or essentialism, it starts to go astray uh, into like uh, kind of a natural theology almost like what's, and and the arguments against, so sort of say like arguments against homosexuality are often framed. Well, that's just not natural. And and so are you kind of against all of that sort of uh, human nature concept altogether? Uh, yes, I am, but it's very important that that shouldn't be conflated with thinking that there aren't any. Uh, you can be against that notion of human nature without, and that's without denying that there are real biological and material constraints, you know, sure. on us and our species. You know, it's just that like their meaning and their significance and how we can relate to them or transform them, you know, is that issue. But yeah. it's not like we start like a blank slate and we can just, <laughs> uh, you know will any constraint or the absence of any constraint not at all but uh just as when it comes to like we're always in terms of our self-understanding we're always thrown into an institutional social uh, normative space that like we have to start from and even if we want to transform that it has to be from within you know from a starting Uh, point yeah so 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 it's important that like it's not some sort of constructivism where like uh, you're a blank slate or you you can just bootstrap yourself up uh, but <laughs> yeah. uh, but so so we don't have to choose between between the natural essence in that way and the pure constructivism in the other sense. No, that's really helpful because I think right now in the culture uh, there is a lot of um, talk about like there's been a revival of kind of race realism and that sort of thing um, in the culture. Absolutely. That's sort of a contest between blank slateism on the one hand and yeah. a kind of determinism on the other hand, and I, I really. I I, kind of sense what you're doing is to say that's the wrong axis upon which to be discussing this in the first place, you know, like. And both of them deny actually the, the constitutive anxiety of, of our spiritual freedom, you know, which is, you know, that constitutive anxiety of the question of like, who do I, who, who ought I to be? What ought I to do? You know? And that question, you know, this is part of what I'm arguing. uh, If you're going to be genuinely, responsive and responsible you both have to have a commitment to a normative commitment who you ought to be what you ought to do but you also have to hold yourself open to the possibility of having to question or revise or transform that conception yeah Uh, and and that's the challenge we should hold ourselves to and we should build our institutions in such a way that we are educated into owning that form of spiritual freedom and that that actually an end in itself it's not just oh, unfortunately, we can't find that final identity that is unquestionable. Hmm. Uh, that, that's the wrong idea, even as an ideal. It's like, no, what we should be learning is to, 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 to own the question of who we ought to be and what we ought to do as an essential question that even in our most fulfilled form of life never goes away because it's part of what uh, uh, animates and keeps us alive and attuned uh, 
so 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 that's really like another um mm. therapeutic transformation that i'm trying to yeah it, bring. it's so important and I, I even just talking to you now i'm getting a much clearer sense that you know this idea that we are selfish by nature and therefore capitalism i mean we've been formed yeah. in this i mean you can imagine right like the anxiety yeah. of destitution or the possibility yeah. of being destitute makes one sort of anxious and graspy and kind of like wanting to grasp onto more and more and hoard and and pretty soon it begins to shape a society around scarcity and fear and uh, risk, you know, instead of saying, yeah. and, and I also think in our political discourse, you know, when we talk about even simple things like, like uh, Medicare for all, um, yeah. it, it, sometimes I'll encounter people to, who say, well, that's just not realistic. And so it's almost like the conversation doesn't begin as you're suggesting with, well, how yeah. would we like our society to be? Yeah. Rather, it's yeah. sort of this predetermined, like, well, that's obviously not a possibility. Um, I guess which so that sort of leads me to perhaps a question that will lead us towards the conclusion here, which is um, can I just say one thing about that? Yeah, because I just want to please. lose that thread. I thought it was very important everything you were just saying because this is also why I think the type of philosophical distinctions I'm trying to work out in the book are very important because we can say like yes, we are essentially dependent on others. You know that never goes away, right. and that's a difficult thing to be dependent on others, and that's always going to have to be negotiated, worked out. But that shouldn't be conflated with you know, a type of social life where, like, uh, uh, we primarily are creatures who are competing for resources, for example, you know? Mm. Uh, that's not the same thing. Uh, so that's one thing I want to say about it. And the other thing is also, like, um, uh, again, it's very important that the critique of our social formation on the capitalism is, again, not nostalgic on my account and Marxist account. It's not like, oh, we had some more primitive form of life mm -hmm. where, where this was better. It's rather that, like, and there has, you know, and, and part of what capitalism brings about through wage labor and so it's a recognition that like of the value of each individual's time and all of these things. But it's just that like, so the critique of capitalism is not in the name of something we lost, but in the name of something we have not yet achieved. Wow. You know, yeah. that's very important. It's so imaginative. Very important. Yeah, that's so important. And it's, it's so... Um... Otherwise, we'll fall into reactive forms of nostalgia that anyways, it's fantasizing about some past that never was. But... This again, the, the the but it's about articulating the possibility of how we could have a more emancipated form of life. It's 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 such a great project, and uh, you know because I think left and right can both fall into this. Yeah. Obviously, we understand how the right can be sort of reactionary and sort of nostalgic for a, a you know yeah. ideal past, and for fascism is kind of a central characteristic of fascism. You know, to have this uh, idealized past that we're trying to reclaim, and but I think the left can do that a little bit too to say like that. Absolutely. You know, that Marx had this pristine, pure vision of the way society ought to be, and we just have to get back to it or something like that. And yeah. uh, rather than saying, like, you know, he had a vision of something that was yet yet to be worked out, and um, yeah. it re re remains to us to to figure that out. And uh, and so I guess that leads perfectly into my, my next question, which is about the programmatic nature of what you're doing. Um, yeah. Obviously, you want folks to read this and then do something. And you know, going back to your idea of habituation and the way that there's not these sort of hardened, uh, you know, naturalistic qualities about our nature that determine the way that we act, but that we can be habituated differently. Like we can, yeah. we can change the way that we behave ourselves yeah. and the way we relate to our own free time and our own yeah. re responsibilities and also the way we relate to others in society. So what, I mean, what do you, inv like, what do we do next, I guess? Um, yeah. Like what yeah. do we do next uh with this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and the fascinating thing that happened 
while I was writing the book is that, you know, not because I planned it at all, uh, but somehow the book became more and more timely as I was writing it. Right. And the really interesting with our current moment is that these fundamental questions that were off the table for a long time, the fundamental question, how should we organize our society? How should we live and work together? These questions are really felt with a new urgency now. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and that's a very important moment. But I see the role of philosophical reflection in such a moment is, is to give, uh, give it more substance through deeper analysis, in this case, for example, what we mean by capitalism and socialism. So, you know, there's a widespread sense that something called capitalism is inimical to our lives, but it's also a lack of orienting visions of what an alternative form of life would be. And so I think what we're missing is not like indictments of capitalism, there are lots of people doing that, <laughs> but what we need is like a profound definition and analysis of capitalism, that's one thing I'm trying to provide, as well as the principles for an economic form of life beyond capitalism. That's the principles of democratic socialism that I provide. Uh, and those are not blueprints at all, but they are like principles in, you know, but they specify, you know, the principles in light of which we would have to organize and try to work out these uh, concrete problems, you know? And uh, so that's one thing I'm trying to provide, that analysis of how we should understand the dynamic of capitalism fundamentally. That's my rereading of Marx. And then also like, what are the principles for, 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 for a post-capitalist form of life? Uh, and those principles, again, they're not abstract, but they're general. They're not particular, but they are concrete. Uh, but then also showing that these, these political questions uh, are inseparable from our deepest existential questions, you know, that like yes. these economic questions are also spiritual questions. Uh, and perhaps the most important way in which that's true is that like, uh, and this is why the habituation point is so important, that, that if we're going to change these things, you know, it's not a matter of just, looking inside what do i really value what is really important it's 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 a matter of like transforming the way we are uh reproducing ourselves collectively through habituation and how we build institutions and ways of education and social formation that that allows us to do justice to our spiritual freedom and our capacity for responsibility uh in new and better ways and to even get a grip on that project we both need to have an account of what's wrong with our current form of life and where we're committed to going. And those are the two things I'm trying to provide. Mm. And they're not sufficient at all. <laughs> I'm painfully aware that they're not sufficient, but I take them to be necessary. So like what I would want most of all is that precisely like that, that question of where do we go from here, as MLK said, is felt with a different urgency after reading the book and that we have better resources to articulate both what the contradictions that we're living under are and what in principle is the mandate of us to overcome them. So, you know, in a super, super feet on the ground sort of way, I mean, do you yeah. imagine groups, to, you know, meetups in local communities that are engaged in local politics, but also take time, you know, like, for instance, just to put it really in practical terms, like I'm a part of my local tenants union and we're, yeah. we're working on um, creating protections for tenants. And, and that can get very policy in the weeds, you know, which is super important. But it seems yeah. also on your account important for those of us, say, in that community to think of ourselves not yeah. just as individuals fighting for our freedoms and our rights, but yeah. a community yeah. that's saying, what kind of life do we really want to have? And um, we may want rent control, but you know, sometimes yeah. our critics will say, well, rent control is not going to fix everything in your community. And, yeah. and yeah. I'm like, well, none of us think that rent control is going to fix everything in our community, but it's a step, you know? And, and yeah. to have an account of, or, or at least, I guess, you know, churches have served this role historically. People who come together once or, tw once or more times per week who ask, you know, 
concretely and, in- and intentionally, what is the good life? And, yeah. and how do we go about I, living it out? Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's very rich. I really want to pick up on that because I really think you, you sewn in on so many things that are important to me and to the book. So, uh, so starting with, uh, with, uh, with, with, the, with the tenants uh, committee there, I mean, I think it, 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 it's important to see that all of those things, it's not just a bureaucratic or administrative task. It's actually like a spiritual project that takes a stand on who we ought to be as tenants, which is part of who we are as citizens and, you know, um, neighbors and so on. Uh, and and, and that, that, that would hold on all of these different scales. And I think that, like, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to counter in the book is this sense that, like, with a secular life that has lost religion that like something essential has been lost and that there's a deficit we can't fill i'm trying to counter that but i also want to you know what you just said reminds us of why people can have that misconception because really like uh, it's mostly religious communities and churches etc that have like infused that sense of spiritual commitment and, and the conversation about the good life and who we ought to be in everyday life but what i want to show is that like actually it's not that you know, that's, that, that the religious understanding of that is the originary and deepest understanding of, of that type of activity. It's rather that, like, when we secularize that, we actually allow it to come into its own potentially even more because it allows us to recognize that actually the, the highest good and what we're devoted to in that type of activity is our life together, our fragile life together, and that's the highest. And, and, and to fully recognize that, uh, uh, we, we have to uh, overcome the religious understanding of these practices. But that doesn't mean that, like, we now are just empty atoms unconnected. On the contrary, it, it would be a deeper way of acknowledging our interdependence. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying that I feel like there's not a form of life that puts us in yeah. touch with each other in a way, yeah. in, in, a, in a context to, in which we get to discuss these things. Um, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And, and exactly, and, and I, I think that's correct as a, as a, as a diagnosis, uh, but I think that people often go from that diagnosis and thinking that like, oh, th- therefore we need to retrieve religion. Right. Than, therefore we need. To, but the, what I want to spur is that like, no, that's like actually like uh, genuine politics and genuine emancipation, right. you know, would achieve that in, in a form, in a structural form that fully recognize that like what we're committed to are each other and not some divine beyond. Uh, and that's, we haven't achieved that yet socially. And, 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 uh, the, the importance of, of achieving something like that is also what the book wants to highlight. Yeah, so you ha- end up having spiritual communities that are just dis- sort of disconnected yeah. from tangible yeah. physical life, and then you have political action groups that don't really take much time to think about the spiritual qualities. And to some exactly, exactly, and and then there's the sense that like uh, again, one thinks of the spiritual as something other than the right. social and material, whereas like. No, these these are just two two sides of the same coin. Once we we develop a notion of, of the spiritual that is not compromised by the supernatural, the religious, and and I'm really that's another thing I'm trying to show in the book. You know that that's really like uh, and that the spiritual really have instead to do with this capacity of engaged in the question mm. of who you ought to do, what you ought to do, what is valuable, and that can't just be an individual question if we understand the individual as a self-sufficient unit we have to understand right. the individual as someone who's essentially dependent on others who's essentially social yeah which goes back to sort of the biological bit like we're not there is a part that's not blank slate like we are you know we're not blank slates we are part of a we're a social organism it's just sort of our biology and our lived reality 
yeah, so, so our, our habituation is both biological and social, and we inherit both of those things. Yeah, you know, and 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 uh, uh, and that's not a restriction on our spiritual freedom. It's a condition of possibility mm-hmm. of our spiritual. Well, Martin, thank you so much. This has been yeah. so rich, and I, I feel like, as I said to you before we started recording, I feel like I, you know I, I'd like to get coffee with you once a week and just keep going. And frankly, yeah, I, frankly, the, the, I would love that. Yeah, I would too. And but the point really isn't about like you and I doing that. The point is really, I think, yeah. about everyone who's hearing this, you know, saying like, okay, I need a group of people with whom I can engage these questions, not just in the abstract. I mean, I think there is both this. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, um, again, with Aristotle, I mean, there's habits of mind and there's habits of practice. And I think we have to both think like in a praxis uh, way, you know, we have to have theory and, and then practice and to cultivate communities that are doing both and really saying, okay, how do we envision our life together? How can we begin to make it happen on very grassroots local level and, and so hopefully see that ripple out into the world? So I can't recommend highly enough that, that folks get the book um, and uh, engage it. It's, it's a little intimidating to look at. It's, it's lengthy, but it's, you know what I love? One of the critiques I heard of your book is that it's repetitive and um, it kind of, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I guess you go over the same ground. And I, I read that critique and I was like, man, I'm so grateful for that. I think I just, it, it really ingrained it in me. You kept circling back to ideas that I was like, oh, that's how that connects to that. And um it was. It was. Um... And for me, it's also an important pedagogical feature to like because it's you know it's actually uh, brings out a different facet of the argument or translates into a different register. Right. Uh, so so it's very important to to have this yeah to let the point refract in so many different registers as the book moves from you know the literary and the intimate to the social and political and showing how all these things are connected. So so for me that was really really essential actually in terms of the composition. Yeah. So I, I take your time with it. It rewards a patient, close reading, and um, I think it's such an achievement and one that will be, I hope, uh, referred back to for many years to come. And I really appreciate you taking the time uh, all the way from Stockholm. Uh, and a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I'm really honored to get to be on the on the podcast and and um, uh, have the chance to talk about talk about the book. Yeah, thank you. I hope our paths will cross in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you were inspired and challenged as I have been. I'd love to hear what you thought. Please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Perhaps as you were listening, you thought of someone you think should hear this. Please don't forget to share it with them. The single greatest way people find out about the Life After God podcast is from listeners sharing it with their friends and family. I always appreciate it when listeners share episodes on their social media with a few thoughts about what inspired them. To learn more about Life After God, to link up with our social media accounts, and generally stay in touch, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you can join our email newsletter and browse the back catalog of all the episodes. If this podcast is meaningful to you and it's been a source of inspiration, please join the group of members and patrons who make it possible by visiting the Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can make any size recurring monthly donation there at the Patreon page. The price of a coffee per month goes so much further than you can imagine and grows the total base of contributors. In this way, more people take what we're doing seriously and we can reach a wider audience. 
Thank you to each of you for tuning in, and especially to our producer, Chris, for all your support. Once again, I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Thank you.